Start your morning with the CNN Daily News Briefing. In just three minutes, we'll tell you about the stories that are making headlines around the world. To listen, tell your smart speaker to play the CNN Daily News Briefing or find us in your favorite podcast app. The deadliest track for a dangerous storm. John Berman here in for Anderson. That combination is now a growing possibility for Hurricane Dorian, a path that maximizes both the number of people in harm's way and the fuel it feeds on. For that reason, we have live coverage from one of the highest risk areas tonight, but we begin with new storm data from the National Hurricane Center just in, and CNN meteorologist Allison Chinchar. Allison, tell us the latest. All right, so let's take a look at what we've got. Current statistics with the storm winds are 85 miles per hour sustained. That forward movement is to the northwest at 13 miles per hour. We had not one but three different Hurricane Hunter planes out investigating this storm at one point in time. That first one has now finally begun to exit and head back home. It was actually an all-female pilot crew there. That one was checking out the upper-level environment. That really helps us determine the steering. Where is this storm going to go? The two missions that are out out there right now, those reconnaissance missions are taking a look at the center of the storm. Is it intensifying? Is it getting stronger? Those types of things. That data should be in shortly, and that's really going to give us an idea of whether or not this storm is actually getting stronger. Is it a Category 2? Could it be getting even stronger than that? Here's a look at the track. We still expect this to be a major hurricane, likely getting to that point in just about 24 hours Mm. from now. And John, we are still looking at the potential for a Category 4 at landfall. In, on, uh, in Florida. In Florida, still looking at, at Monday, Tuesday landfall. What's the timing there? And I know there is some difference in the models. Right, there is. And there's quite a discrepancy, actually. So let's take a look. So the different model runs that we have, uh, it's shifted quite a bit. The American model was originally favoring further into North Florida. Now it's begun a little bit of a shift farther south. So let's take a look. The American model is on the left. The European model is on the right. Notice the landfall point. They're really starting to come together and where they think the landfall will be. Most likely that south central portion of the state. But look at the times. Huge difference here, John. Monday at 8 p.m. versus Wednesday at 8 a.m. You're almost talking a 48-hour difference for the two models here in terms of landfall timing. And that could be substantial, too, because the longer it takes, the more likely it is to sit over Florida and be much slower to exit out of the region. That's a huge difference in timing. I don't think I've ever seen that before. So, Allison, a lot of times when we do talk about these storms, it's important not only what category they are, when they hit, but also how long it takes them to break up. As you were saying there, do you have any idea what path this storm might take after it makes landfall? Right. So what you tend to look at then is let's look at how much rain is going to drop. Does that start to move out pretty quick? Because we all know we learned from Harvey, we learned from Florence that the longer the storm can sit over the area, the more rain it can dump. Here's a look at one of those models. Again, notice the stretch, the highest amount of rain. You're talking in excess of 10 to 20 inches of rain. Notice how widespread this is. I mean, you're talking about an area from Fort Lauderdale all the way up to Jacksonville. This really does signal to us that, yes, it has the potential to sit here for an extended period of time before it can get picked up in some other atmospheric phenomenon and then finally take it out. So, yes, it is not out of the question for this to make landfall and essentially sit in place for a little while before it finally exits. All right, Allison Chinchar, thank you for that information. I know you're getting more data. Please keep us posted. This takes on even more residents residents when you consider it was 14 years ago today that Hurricane Katrina came ashore. 
And one legacy, one of the few positive things to come out of what was for so many people such a terrible experience is the idea that no hurricane should ever be taken lightly. A state of emergency is now in effect in all of Florida's 67 counties and preparations underway across the state, including in Port Canaveral along the Space Coast. Seen as Layla Santiago there for us now. Layla, how concerned are residents at this point? What are you hearing? You know, of those that I've talked to, they are very quick to say, listen, it is still very early, but we are keeping a close eye. We are monitoring. And often uh, I've heard people say, I was here for Hurricane Irma. I remember it and I don't want to see something like that again. So that tends to be the response from residents and businesses. Today, we spoke to one hotel manager who said that uh, she was concerned over all the cancellations that she's already received, said that uh, she'll take about a $120,000 loss uh, because it's Labor Day weekend. So she was expecting a lot of folks to come in and, and stay at her hotel for the long weekend. She was counting on this for her business. That is changing already. So for businesses, especially here at the port where we are right now, They're already expecting to see changes in tourism. How else is the community preparing? And I asked this, Layla, because I was actually surprised to see video of long gas lines already. Right. Well, the first thing I noticed when I got here was the fact that many stores are already limiting the amount of water that people can buy. I spoke to uh, the folks over at the city of Cocoa Beach, and they tell me tomorrow they're going to bring in two truckloads of sand so that folks can make their own sandbags and prepare. And I've also seen that they have waste management out and about picking up any tree branches or anything that could become dangerous debris uh, should this storm make landfall here. So people are already preparing. Uh, I do hear quite a few mentioning what I said earlier, that that it's early, but every single person that I've asked, what is your biggest concern? They say a direct hit is the big concern. And now is the time to get ready. Leila Santiago, thank you so much for being there for us. I appreciate it. President Trump tweeted about the storm today, and it was quite a contrast from his remarks when Puerto Rico was in harm's way. He trashed the Commonwealth, as you will recall, and Here's what he said about Florida. Hurricane Dorian looks like it will be hitting Florida late Sunday night. Be prepared and please follow state and federal instructions. It will be a very big hurricane, perhaps one of the biggest. The president did cancel a trip to Poland so he could better monitor the storm. Joining us now is Ben Malik. He's the mayor of Cocoa Beach, where Layla mentioned they are now getting ready. Mayor Malik, it was just two years ago that Hurricane Irma slammed into Cocoa Beach, causing a lot of damage to that community, even tearing the roof off your police department. So what concerns you most about this storm? Well, obviously, the uh, the storm, good evening, is um, it, these things have a mind of their own. So if you look at the models, they're kind of all over the board, unfortunately, not perfect time. We have learned for those of us that have been in Florida for quite some time, it's just best to prepare for the worst and pray for the best. That is the best course of action. And prepare now when you still have time. What is your community doing to get ready for Dorian? You bet. Um, absolutely. Now is the time to get supplies, have your hurricane kit ready, you know, have some flashlights if you lose power, which was uh, quite a good scenario. Uh, Floridians that have been here a while are pretty well versed in this drill. You know, a lot of folks have uh, generators. It'll power up your fridge. 
a little window. August in Florida is quite steep. All right, Mayor Malik, you know, we're having audio problems. We appreciate you trying to join us tonight, but I know the message you're trying to send to your people is get ready now. Use today, use tomorrow, get the supplies you need. And your experience in Hurricane Irma two years ago taught you that preparedness is the best course of action. Mayor, thank you very much. Next up for us, President Trump accused him of leaking classified information of breaking the law. Now the Justice Department's report on fired FBI Director James Comey is out, and you'll want to see what it says about the president's allegation and Comey's conduct. And later, will it be yet another present for Putin? We'll look at a possible new presidential move that seems to leave the country that Russia invaded high and dry. Former FBI Director James Comey bent or broke the rules but did not break the law. That's the conclusion of a Justice Department inspector general's report on his handling of memos he wrote detailing what he said were attempts by President Trump to obstruct justice and extract a personal loyalty pledge from him. That's one key headline. The other concerns the president's repeated claim that Director Comey broke the law. CNN Shimon Prokipes has been reporting on this really from the very beginning. He joins us now with all the details. So, Shimon, what exactly did the IG determine Comey did wrong here? violated policy, right? That is that you don't circumvent the process. You don't go around the Department of Justice. You don't go around the FBI. And then on your own, you unilaterally decided, okay, I'm going to release information because I want to see something done in this investigation. And that is that he, right, we know that Comey wanted a special counsel appointed in this case. And so he has said so as himself that he put this out there. He leaked some of this information out there through his lawyer to try and get a special counsel appointed. And the two key things here, as you said, John, was that for Comey, look, he did violate policy. I think he is fully aware that he, that he did that. The thing, though, most important for him is that the inspector general here found that he did not leak classified information. He didn't give any information to the media of that is classified. So he did get something out of this. Obviously, violated policy is a big issue. The inspector general saying that he put uh, basically people in danger. You know, by doing something like this, you're sending a message that others can do this. And that was really the biggest concern uh, for the one of the biggest concerns, I think, for the inspector general in this report, uh, in that they say that he was supposed to safeguard this information. uh, And instead, he did this to try and create public pressure for that special counsel to be appointed. A little more detail, if you can, Shimon, on the idea of the classified information. He found that Comey did not leak classified information. That's right. That's what they found. They found that within the memos that did ultimately wind up in the press leaked to The New York Times, uh, there was no classified information. The memos themselves at some point after the FBI takes a look at these memos again, after it gets out there, they then start taking a look at this. The FBI does. And they said, you know what, we're going to there are some things in here that are classified, some of the wording, some of the sentencing. It wasn't that all of it was classified, but there were parts of it that were classified. And so what they did was, as we've seen them do in other in other cases, they went back, they looked at it, they said, OK, well, now we're going to classify. So at the time that Comey had these memos, uh, certainly the one, some of the information that got out there. That wasn't classified at the time. But then the FBI went back and they took a look at it and they're like, "Okay, we're going to classify some of this. So they did it retroactively. Okay. as for James Comey himself, 
How has he reacted to these findings today? Well, obviously critical uh, of the attacks. Uh, he has felt that he's taken in all of this by all the accusations that he leaked classified information. And in a tweet, uh, he says, uh, I don't need a public apology from those who defamed me, but a quick message with a, quote, sorry we lied about you would be nice. And to all those who've spent two years talking about me going to jail or being a liar and a leaker, ask yourselves why you still trust people who gave you bad info for so long. And then, of course, he writes, including the president. Obviously, not holding back here. Mm -hmm. uh, He feels that he has been attacked continuously. Accusations made against him of leaking, that he should go to jail. So I think in the end here, as you can see, he feels vindicated, but still tough words Mm -hmm. here from the inspector general uh, who said that he violated policy. And I can tell you, John, just briefly, I think that for people of the FBI, they're happy to see this part of it over. There's still another part coming, another inspector general report that's going to take that's taking a look at the entire Russia investigation and that how that was handled. Uh, And that is expected to be tough on the FBI as well. But for now, I think having this part behind them for the FBI, uh, I think they're thankful for it. A lot of them in the end do not agree with what Comey did here. Even those who supported Mm -hmm. him initially uh, now do not believe what he did here was right. More to come, obviously. More Inspector General uh, reports uh, that should drop soon. All right, Shimon Prokopis, thank you very much for your reporting. More now on this report, the repercussions and the controversy surrounding it. Joining us, two CNN legal analysts, Elliot Williams, who served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General during the Obama administration, also former federal prosecutor and New Jersey Attorney General, Ann Milgram. Elliot, do you agree with what the IG found here, which is essentially James Comey didn't break the law but he didn't cover himself in glory. He violated right. DOJ and FBI policies. Does that right. seem reasonable? It does. But here's the thing. Two things can be in- entirely true. Number one, that the director Comey violated DOJ policy and these um, guidelines with respect to uh, information and how to, how to safeguard them. But also that we're in remarkable times and that the president of the United States, senior law enforcement officials, did not trust him to the point that vert- a number of them around him needed to write memoranda, writing down every word he said because they didn't know he wouldn't lie. Even the White House counsel, Don McGahn, and this is in the Mueller report, there's an entire section on it. McGahn, whenever he was face-to-face with the president, would write memoranda afterward because he wasn't certain that the president wouldn't lie afterward. And so, um, you know, those two things can be true. Yes, Comey might have behaved in a manner that wasn't entirely appropriate, but also the conduct of the president was so problematic uh, that people behaved in a remarkable way. Well, that's basically the argument that Comey's been making all along, that extraordinary times or alarming times, as he would say, calls for extraordinary measures. And but the inspector general's report addresses this, which says there are systems to go through if you have problems with the way things are happening. Yeah, I think one of the fascinating things about this is that Comey definitely saw himself almost as a whistleblower here. But if you look at the way this went down, I understand the instinct that I think relates to what Elliot was just talking about, which is to take those documents and to make sure almost an insurance policy. The president just fired me. Something is going on here. He's trying to impair an investigation. I'm going to take them with me. It's the additional step, I think, of leaking them and making them public that I think it's fair for the inspector general to say, look, you shouldn't do that and that there are other ways. And I think, again, in Comey's mind, he he saw himself as a whistleblower and sort of ran to the media to get that outlet. But the inspector general is saying, like, look, you know, there are other ways to think about doing these things. And those weren't your documents to, to leak to the media. And that's important because the inspector general has got to think about the institution and forever. 
they can't send the message that every FBI official can take documents home and leak them when he or she thinks there's some kind of crisis. Exactly. And that they get to choose. I think that this is a problem, so I get to leak it. Um, And obviously, you know, Comey definitely, I think he's sincere in thinking it was it was absolutely a problem and that he was doing Mm -hmm. the right thing. But I do think the inspector general was right on that. Now, the other big finding, Elliot, in this James Comey thinks is the most important finding here is that he didn't leak classified information. Does that shut the door on this forever? Because I have a feeling the president's still going to accuse him of being a leaker. <laughs> well, this is exactly Anne's point. Um, he didn't leak classified information, but you know he acted in contravention of DOJ policy. Now, not leaking information that he knew to be classified is what saves him mm-hmm. from uh, being criminally charged. Uh, because as we know now multiple times, including Donald Trump Jr. and frankly Hillary Clinton and the president, that meeting that criminal standard is very high and very difficult at times. Um, and so certainly, no, he did not leak classified information. But this is this is the drumbeat today. And this is where, you know, the report is, is frankly, somewhat fair to, to Director Comey that, um, you know, this is conduct that if we wish to treat information as secure and protect the integrity of investigations and frankly, in, in protect the safety of DOJ personnel. Yeah, you need to follow those uh, the guidelines with respect to how to safeguard information. And what do you make of the decision not to prosecute? It seems you think that that was fairly easy to make. Yes, I think here there's no question that they made the right decision. There's absolutely no intent to leak classified information. And Elliot mentioned they classified the documents after. But it's also important to note that Comey himself could classify information. Right. He was the director of the FBI. He did mark two of the memos as classified. He did not take those. And so it's very clear that his intent was not to take any classified material and that he believed what he had and what he shared was not classified. He had a consciousness of classification when he was doing what he was doing. And he intentionally did not take that. And so to try to argue that he intentionally did anything with regard to classification, I don't think the government could ever approve in that case. Elliot, I'm not so sure at this point that any more could be done one way or another to James Comey's reputation. It seems that people have views now that are set in stone on him. But what does this do for his legacy? Well, look, I, you know, you, you heard the, sh- the term Rorschach test before, and people are going to think about James Comey, well, the Rorschach, the inkblot test that psychologists use. People are going to think of James Comey and, frankly, the president of the United States, what they're going to think. There are people who believe uh, that, you know, James Comey was acting in the interest of the United States because, this is the point I was making earlier, the president's behavior was simply remarkable. Regardless of what you think of the president, it's remarkable behavior when even the White House counsel doesn't trust him. There are also people that think that Jim Comey should be in jail. So, no, I don't think anyone's view is changed right now. But, but again, this was a, a fair report, mm-hmm. and he's not charged with a crime. So, Anne, Shimon referred to the other inspector general's report, which is going to deal with the FISA application specifically. And then there's a whole other investigation about the investigation to begin with that William Barr is looking into here. Does this report portend anything for that? If this inspector general, every time he's taken a look, he's found things that make him uncomfortable at the least and you know upset at the most. Does that mean the next ones are also going to be highly critical. I don't, I don't assume that, but I would say that you're right in, in how Michael Horowitz, who's the inspector general, he is a stickler for the rules, for sure, and he has called out any single violation of the rule, and he's been quick to say, you know, even under remarkable circumstances, here's a violation, here's a violation. And so, you know, I think he's going to call it as he sees it. I don't think that this outcome necessarily speaks at all to the FISA and the beginning of the investigation, but as you say, it's sort of extraordinary, all these inspector general and investigations that are happening. Elliot, I can tell you from people I speak to who've been connected to the agency or are still on the inside, they expect the next one to be critical. There's a sense out there 
that it's going to be tough. I know you have some connections inside as well. Do you sense that same thing? I do. And, and look, and I, over, I overlapped with uh, Michael Horowitz the second stint I was there. I think he's going to be fair. But again, there's blame to go around, uh, on, on, to quote the president, on all sides. Uh, so we will see. But no, I think it's, I, I would think it would be tough just uh, given the, I guess, the complexity of the law here, but also the, the very hot feelings uh, on that many people have uh, and many people who believe they were acting in the interest of the United States, but at times violating DOJ rules. And as we saw just today. That next report, by the way, expected in September, which isn't that long away at this point. Elliot Williams and Milgram, thank you very much for being with us tonight. So the White House sending signals it wants to cut a significant military aid package to Ukraine, something that has critics questioning why the president appears to be favoring Moscow yet again. Coming up, I'm going to speak with a key member of Congress about this and other high-profile issues facing Congress when it returns from summer recess. There are reports tonight that President Trump is seriously considering blocking $250 million in military assistance to Ukraine, something that would no doubt please Russian President Vladimir Putin. Supporters of the aid say it helps counter Russian influence and aggression in the region. Nothing's final yet, but if the administration goes ahead, it is bound to draw considerable pushback from Congress from both sides of the aisle. This, as an administration official tells CNN, the Pentagon has already said a hold on that aid should be lifted. Joining me now is Virginia Democrat Jerry Connolly, a member of the House Oversight Committee and Foreign Affairs Committee. Congressman, thanks so much for being with us. I wonder what message... Good to be with you, John. I wonder what message you think this sends about whose side the U.S. is actually on here when it comes to Russia and Ukraine. You know, what a good question. There's nothing even subtle about this one. Um, you know, Trump is sending up smoke signals uh, bigger than mountains for Vladimir Putin. And for that matter, for those countries who are counting on U.S. assistance and support against Russian depredations. Remember, the Russians occupy parts of Georgia, Moldova and the Ukraine, including the illegal annexation of Crimea. So this is a, a terrible signal to be sending, but a very clear one. I have to say, to be fair, some Republicans have come forward already and condemned the notion of blocking this aid. But, you know, if President Obama had ever seriously considered blocking military aid to Ukraine, don't you think that every single Republican would be up in arms? Do you need to hear more from the other side of the aisle? Absolutely. I mean, (laughs) the double standards among my colleagues in the House and the Senate on the other side of the aisle uh, are too numerous to uh, to retell. But uh, there's no question that uh, most of them choose silence mm-hmm. or rationalization for policies that are frankly indefensible. But in this particular case, uh, lives are at risk. Remember, fighting is going on in eastern Ukraine. Lives are being lost. The Ukrainian people are trying to recover their lost territory. And uh, the United States ought to be standing side by side with our fellow democratic nation and with, uh, frank, frankly, freedom fighters and freedom lovers uh, in, in the Ukraine. And, and this does come on the heels, by the way, of the president at the G7 pushing for Russia to be readmitted. Do you see a connection there? Um, I think it's all part of a pattern. None of us really can fathom this uh, bromance between Donald J. Trump and Vladimir Putin. 
But now it's gone much further than that. This is enabling behavior. This is inviting Putin into the tent uh, and turning a, a, a blind eye, in fact, turning his back toward uh, Russian uh, you know, malicious behavior, especially in Ukraine. Uh, and I think it's something that ought to be roundly condemned by all members of Congress. And Congress needs to reassert as quickly as possible that $250 million has been appropriated. It must be provided to the government of the Ukraine. We'll see how Congress handles it when you all come back uh, next week. I also want to ask you about the reporting that President Trump recently told aides he would pardon them if they committed illegal acts while fulfilling his demand to build a border wall by 2020. Now, White House insiders tell us he was only joking when he said that. Not clear. But some of the Democratic colleagues in Congress say if it is true, it would constitute an unconstitutional abuse of power. Do you agree and do you think it needs to be investigated? I certainly think it needs to be investigated, John. Um, is it an abuse of power? Well, uh, pardons are not a laughing matter. Uh, and the abuse of the use of pardons, which is a pretty broad use provided in the Constitution, is deeply troubling. He promised... He says he was joking. Uh, his aides, who expressed concern that some of what he was asking them to do was against the law, he said, well, I'll pardon you. Don't worry about it. Go ahead and do it anyhow. If that is accurate, he is urging staff members to commit violations of law, crimes, in, and in return for which he'll promise them a pardon. Uh, that is itself potentially criminal activity on the part of the president. Potentially impeachable? Absolutely. You know, we had a governor of, uh, I think, Tennessee, you know, a number of years ago who went to jail for selling pardons, for offering pardons in exchange for something of value. Uh, and that's what President Trump is doing here if this story is accurate. All right. Jerry Conley, Democratic congressman from Virginia. Thank you very much for being with us tonight. Do appreciate your time. My pleasure. Up next, reaction from a former intelligence insider to new remarks by former Defense Secretary James Mattis about his relationship with President Trump. James Clapper joins us next. More tonight from former Defense Secretary James Mattis, who resigned abruptly last December after President Trump announced he would withdraw all U.S. troops from Syria. Mattis is speaking out about his time in the Trump administration as he promotes his new book out next week. He told The Atlantic, quote, You don't endanger the country by attacking the elected commander-in-chief, I may not like a commander-in-chief one frickin' bit, but our system puts the commander-in-chief in there and to further weaken him when we're up against real threats? I mean, we could be at war on the Korean Peninsula every time they start larching something. Join me now is retired Lieutenant General James Clapper, former director of national intelligence and a CNN national security analyst. He's also the author of Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. And Director Clapper... I wonder if you agree with that point that Secretary Mattis made, that he owes the commander-in-chief silence. And I ask, because your service in this country started in 1961, ended the day President Trump was inaugurated, but instead of entering private life silently, you ended up speaking out in some ways because you found some of what he was doing dangerous. Uh, well, that's right, John. I, I, I did. Uh, I, initially, my objective was simply to uh, defend the intelligence community, which at the time uh, was and, and in some ways still is under under attack uh, by the president. And having just 
left it, I understood how difficult it is for those who are in it to speak up and felt I had to uh, uh, play that role. And I, I sort of followed the model of Mike Hayden, who uh, <clears throat> during our challenges in, in the uh, Snowden, with the Snowden revelations, and, and Mike was very effective as part, sort of our unofficial public spokesman, and I thought I, I should follow that, that, uh, that model. I will say this is a very individual, uh, personal decision. Uh, what Jim did, <clears throat> is, is circumspect as he has been, is classic Jim Mattis. Uh, and I'll never forget the scene uh, when he and the president-elect were standing on the doorstep there at Bedminster. And uh, I had two thoughts. Uh, thank God that Jim is going to take this job on as Secretary of Defense, but it won't last. Jim is a matter, man of, of principle, and uh, he stayed, as he said. Uh, he did as well as he could for as long as he could. And uh, I, the truth in advertising, he, he's, he's a friend and someone I, I greatly admire. On the subject of it won't last, in the same interview that we're talking about, General Mattis says, quote, there is a period in which I owe my silence. It's not eternal. It's not going to be forever. So when do you think this grace period might end for him? Uh, you know, I don't know, John, and I thought that statement was very uh, intriguing. Uh, I think uh, Jim has been somewhat, uh, not to be an amateur psychologist here, but somewhat uh, internally conflicted. And I would be very surprised if he doesn't speak out uh, more uh, explicitly about the president as the election draws nigh. So I can't put a, you know, obviously a, a date and time, but I think we'll hear more from Jim and I hope we do. Interesting, because that, of course, is the date that a lot of people are looking at right now. Will he speak more before the election? I want to read one more passage from this article describing the meeting that led to Mattis resigning, because we've never really heard these details before. It reads, quote, Mattis made his case for keeping troops in Syria. Trump rejected his arguments. 30 minutes into the conversation, Mattis told the president, you're going to have to get the next secretary of defense to lose to ISIS. I'm not going to do it. Now, I should note, Jeffrey Goldberg, who wrote this piece, says that none of those details came from Mattis himself, but still a pretty remarkable scene, no? Well, yeah, yeah and it is, uh, well, again, as you point out, John, it's not directly from uh, Jim Mattis himself, but it is, I think, consistent. Uh, Jim... Uh, and I saw this when he was commander of Central Command, placed a very high premium on relations with our allies. Uh, he's not one who believes that the United States can go it alone. That's why I figured that with this America First approach that uh, Jim's time as Secretary of Defense was, was limited. And I think the, the straw that broke the camel's back was uh, leaving Syria when ISIS had not been defeated and as well kind of leaving the Kurds high and dry, who only did everything we asked them to do it and did all the heavy lifting when it came to, to fighting and dying. And I think that was, uh, that was it for Jim. You know, in the realm of supporting your allies, I do want to ask you about the news out today that the president is considering blocking military <clears throat> assistance to Ukraine, $250 million worth, Ukraine, an ally of the United States. So what message would that send to the world and Vladimir Putin? <laughs> well, uh, not a very good one uh, in, in terms of... Uh, the messaging to our, uh, our friends and allies, 
And of course, uh, you know, this is a, a good day. It's a happy face day for Vladimir Putin. Uh, you know, we have, I, I believe, the United States has a, an ethical, moral and ethical responsibility to help, to continue to help, to support the Ukraine, who is, uh, of course, fighting against the separatists in the southeast part of the country and still dealing with a seizure of, of Crimea. And I, I, it's been a consistent policy since that happened to, to support them. And as well, your previous segment is germane here. Uh, this kind of uh, conflicts with the congressional will. Mm -hmm. James Clapper, General, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Always appreciate it. Thanks, John. When we come back, see why getting smaller is the biggest news possible about the next Democratic debate. Also, who's in and who's out? Former Congressman Beto O'Rourke. The September Democratic debate will be just one night. Just 10 presidential candidates managed to qualify for the third debate face-off. Here is the podium order with the highest polling candidates nearest the center. From left to right, you see Senator Amy Klobuchar, Senator Cory Booker, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Senator Bernie Sanders, former Vice President Joe Biden, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator Kamala Harris, entrepreneur Andrew Yang, former Congressman Beto O'Rourke, and former HUD Secretary Julian Castro. Ladies and gentlemen, your September Democratic debate. Let's check in with Chris for more on <laughs> what this all means and what he's working on for Cuomo primetime. Chris, when we lost spoke on TV, you couldn't hear me, but I could hear you. Yes. Let's I hope know, that's, that's like the opposite of how you want it to that's be. And also, I was faking it. I heard you the whole time. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. What do you mean? So, so, so Warren, you know, Warren and Biden next to each other. That's the debate that a lot of people want to see. A hundred percent. I mean, I think that if Elizabeth Warren tunes Joe Biden up. Uh, what does that look like? It looks like him not wanting to engage with her, uh, him being too deferential to the time clock, him not seeming to have the same passion and sense of purpose that she has. See, I'm not mentioning ideas. I'm not mentioning policies because I think that party right now is grossly overestimating their value in the upcoming <laughs> battle they'll be in with this president. What does it mean? Other than what you and I are talking about, it doesn't mean that much. You know, it's 156, 57 days before anybody casts a vote. You know, they're going to keep winnowing it down. They have to figure out what matters most to them. But it's always interesting to watch. What do you got coming up on the show? All right. Got Andrew Yang here. All right. For a little bit of this conversation that we're having right now, where is his place in the field? What does he feel about the place of his party right now? Does he agree with what I'm saying about where they are coming up on this? We're going to get also into Dorian. We have one of the storm chasers up there in the plane, you know, one of the NOAA guys, how Dorian looks, what their concerns are, and what you and I will be heading into when we get in front of this thing. Yeah, this track, reason for serious concern. All right, Chris, thank you very much. We'll see you in a few minutes. Up next, he said it was the God's truth, but a new report says Joe Biden may have been truly mistaken about the war story that he keeps telling on the campaign trail. Twenty twenty Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden has a war story he likes to tell on the campaign trail, but a new report says the specifics of his latest version are mostly wrong. CNN's Arlette Signs traveling with the former vice president and joins us now with the story on the story. Arlette, what can you tell us about this? 
Well, Anderson, this all stems from a story that former Vice President Joe Biden told last Friday at an event in Hanover, New Hampshire. He was recounting this story of a war hero who had gone down a ravine to bring back the body of a comrade. And he said that that person had told him at the time as he awarded him a medal that he did not want to receive that uh, medal because he didn't feel like he uh, had actually deserved it. But the Washington Post is now reporting that the facts, the details in that story were conflated, that they were actually drawn from multiple accounts and stringed in together into one incident. But the Washington Post does acknowledge that the core of that story, that, that or one component of that story that Biden did tell, where he said that there was a service member uh, who said that they didn't feel like they deserved the award, that that was true. They interviewed someone named Army Staff Sergeant Chad Workman, who was in Afghanistan and did get a uh, did get a, a medal pinned on him by the former vice president. So right now, uh, the, the Washington Post reporting that he, the former vice president uh, conflated uh, the details uh, of this uh, incident for, of three incidents into one. So Arlette, John. the former vice president, I guess, has commented now on this story and he seems to be pushing back. Yes. Yeah, that's right, John. He did uh, push back on this in, in a series of interviews today, uh, one with the Post and Courier, a local South Carolina newspaper, and uh, in another interview uh, with the Washington Post with Jonathan Capehart. Take a listen to what he had to say there. What is the gaff when, gaff when I said there was a young man I tried to pin a medal on? He said, I don't want it, sir. He died. He died. He died. And it was a young man, my recollection was, that in fact pulled a colleague of his out of a burning Humvee and he risked his life doing it and the young man died that he tried to save. Now, we tried to ask Biden about this as he was leaving his event here in Greenville, South Carolina, right. but he ignored reporters' questions as he was leaving, uh, did not further elaborate uh, on the details uh, of the story that he told last week. John. All right, Arlette Signs, thank you very much for that. Joining us now, CNN political commentator Jen Psaki, former White House communications director in the Obama White House. And Jen, as someone who knows mm -hmm. the vice president and who worked with him in the administration, what do you make of all this? Well, Vice President Biden has been telling this story and inaccurate versions of it for several years. I mean, back to 2016 and even before. That doesn't make it right. Um, you know, mm -hmm. he should be telling the accurate version of the story. But really what he's trying to you know, convey is his connection with military veterans, the men and women who are serving. As everyone knows, his son served. He keeps kind of a record with him of the number of men and women who have been killed in Iraq and Afghanistan and places of war with him on the trail every day. So that's who he is and what he's trying to mm -hmm. convey. You know, I don't think that there's going to be big demarcation points against him for combining versions of stories that were accurate. Um, you know, it's still he's still conveying that he cares about the men and women who serve. And, and that bears out by, you know, validation of, of, of people who have met him. And and even that that veteran um, who Arlette mentioned, who had mm -hmm. had a, whose story uh, he was he was trying to tell. But the, the details are just not accurate, though, according mm -hmm. to the Washington Post version of this, which is why I think it was curious today how the vice president just pushed back completely and said, no, I didn't get it wrong or suggested if he did get it wrong, it didn't matter because the thrust of the story was right. I thought that was interesting. And I'm wondering if that's part of the new world we're in. Has Donald Trump made it safe to say up is down in some cases? 
Well, that's also uh, that kind of pushing back is also what we've seen Joe Biden do uh, unrelated to Donald Trump over the past several months when, uh, you know, some of the statements he's made have been questioned or they've been a little bit off or he's made comments that have been offensive at times. His initial gut is to not acknowledge that. That's who he is uh, as well. So in this case, sure, watching, uh, I wish that he would have said, you know, I did have that experience with a veteran. I combined the details. But the point is that I care about the men and women who mm. serve. Of course, you wish that's what he would have said. And, and we have about 30 seconds left. Of course, the other issue here is if he didn't remember the story accurately, mm-hmm. does this play into the questions about his age? Well, you know, I think, John, that gaffes in general, there's a lot of focus on them. I don't think they matter much unless they play into a perceived vulnerability. And there has been this chatter, uh, fair or unfair, about him being whether he's up to the task or not. And this plays into that a lot. We haven't seen that bear out in polls at this point, um, even with gaffes that he's made on the trail. So it might be that people are forgiving and they don't care. Again, it may just be part of this new era we're in where things like this don't matter as much as maybe they used to if they ever matter. But we're going to have to wait and see on that. Jen Saki, great to have you on with us tonight. I really appreciate it. A lot more going on tonight with Hurricane Dorian bearing down. The news continues. So I'll now hand it over to Chris for Cuomo Primetime. Sir. 